as you're going ahead and grabbing your seats, get your Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to share with you a little story. This morning I woke up, and as I'm getting ready, uh, it's a very normal Sunday morning, and Erin asked, how can I pray for you today like she does uh, every Sunday? And, and I had a little bit of a headache and, and wasn't feeling real well, and so I was searching for a word, and I said, pray that when I preach this morning, I preach with... And I couldn't think of the word, and she said, gusto. And so uh, you've been warned, all right? So if, if, if this is gusto, then be ready. Let's, let's uh, buckle up. All right, so Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. So that's our goal this morning. We're going to start in verse 8, finish out the chapter together today in this great and wonderful story that we find here in the second book of what we call the Pentateuch, all right? And so what's going to happen this morning is we're going to take a look at a story about God's people, and we're gonna see that in this story that God's people face uh, some of the most unbelievable hardships that they've ever faced in their history. And so we're gonna talk about that this morning. We're gonna talk about uh, facing difficulty. We're gonna talk about facing uh, some, some dark days and some things that are very, very challenging. And I think it's, it's good for us as believers to talk about these things because uh, we know that we're gonna eventually find ourselves there. In fact, some of you may be there uh, now, raise your hand if, if you're going through something hard or know someone who's going through something like very difficult. Anybody? All right, so that's a lot of us in here. So I think we can all relate to this, this topic and we're gonna see this play itself out in God's word as we look at what happens to Israel here in Exodus chapter one. And a good thing for you to do whenever you study God's word, particularly when you study a narrative. And by narrative, we're talking about a story, right? So it's not a letter that we find in the New Testament. It's a story that you're reading. A good practice uh, to put into place when you read narrative is to understand the story first, all right? So we want to make sure this morning that we read through it, that we unpack it enough so that we can wrap our minds around what's going on in this story so that we have good Context, And then the second step after that is then for us to pull out the theological truths that we see in it and then begin to apply it to our lives. And so that's the process we're going to follow this morning. I'm going to pray here in just one second, ask God to guide our time together. Then we're going to read through this story together and make sure that we understand it in its scope and in its context. And then we're going to finish our time together here this morning talking about three theological truths. And then we're going to apply all those to our lives today today as believers, all right? So if you would, join me in praying to God uh, one more time this morning. Father, we thank you again for all that you've done. God, we ask that you would meet with us here this morning. God, I pray that you would uh, be with us, God, as we unpack this text. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand, God, that there's times in our lives when we're gonna face difficulty, God, when we're gonna face some very, very dark days. And God, I pray that we would recognize that you've never promised us that you're gonna take those hard things away, but God, you have promised us that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that God, you're gonna work in and through and around and despite the difficult things that we face in this broken and sinful world. And God, because of that, we can conclude together that you are good and God, that you are trustworthy. And Lord, I pray that every single person in this room knows that here this morning. God, I pray for the, the person that's here today that, that maybe they're in the middle of something very dark, something very difficult. God, I pray that you would encourage them today. God, I pray that they would be reminded that you see and that you know and that you care. 
And God, I pray that, that you would, uh, again, remind us, God, that, that you're there with us. God, I pray that you would be with the person that maybe they're going through difficult times, God, and they're just barely holding on. God, maybe they're beginning to question your goodness. Maybe they're beginning to question your, your plans and your timing and things. And God, I pray that you would meet with them here today. And God, that you would reassure them and that you would encourage them. And God, that you would give them a peace that surpasses understanding. God, we trust you in all things. And we ask you for your clarity and your guidance as we look at this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we've got a lot to cover this morning. Verse 8 through the end of this chapter in verse 22. And uh, this is it's a kind of a crazy story here um, in the life of Israel, all right? And so as you remember, we started our sermon series last week. We covered the first seven verses in the book of Exodus. And the first seven verses in Exodus serve as a bridge between what happened in the book of Genesis and what's about to happen as God delivers his people from bondage in the future. And so these verses serve to help us better understand the context in which the people of Israel find themselves. Like, why do they need to be delivered? What's going on in their lives? And so we see here in this passage that they're facing some extreme difficulty. They're facing oppression by the people of, of Egypt, and they've been put into bondage that only God can deliver them from. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at them facing difficult days and dark days in their history. So if you would, start reading with me in verses 8 and 9, and then we'll camp out there for just a second to make sure we understand this. So Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8, says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Now, if you would, look at, with me real fast at verse 8. That's another one of those verses like we talked about last week as we're reading narrative and as we're reading God's big story. We might just read through and not make much of, but that's a very significant verse in this context. Remember, Joseph is brought to Egypt through slavery by God. And he's put into second in command so that he might deliver his people and sustain his people through his family, right? His brothers and his dad. And the Bible told us that they showed up and there's 70 people in this family and they begin their lives there in Egypt. And then we know over the course of time that they begin to flourish and grow there. They're growing in number and that group of 70 is turning into a larger group of people. And the Bible goes on to tell us that Joseph and all of his brothers, which we know as the patriarchs from the book of Genesis, they all die. All right. And now it's just God and the people that are left there. And then in verse eight, it tells us that over the course of time, there became a new person in charge. There was a new Pharaoh or a new king over Egypt. And he didn't know Joseph or any of the things that the people of Israel had established with the nation of Egypt. Now, you might wonder, how in the world does that happen? Because so much time has elapsed. In one verse, we've made a jump of about 300 years. Now, we weren't supplied with a lot of details, right? But we know about 300 years have passed in, in our timeline of events. And so that's why the new king or the new Pharaoh, he doesn't know anything about Joseph, right? To put it in perspective for you, this July 4th, we will celebrate our 247th year as a country, 
Right? So we're not even to where the, the Israelites are living in Egypt at this point. So as you can tell, like, there's probably some things that they don't know about Joseph. And they don't know about the, the, the plans that they had and the, and the partnership that they had with God's people here. So verse 8 tells us that this is a new king over Egypt. He doesn't know all of the previous arrangements that they had. And he determines that they have a problem on their hands in verse 9. And that problem is, as these people, they've gotten too many and they've become too strong, right? So they've grown in number. As I said, that family of 70 that showed up in Egypt some 300 years ago, as you can imagine, they've added to their numbers. 300 years worth of growing their families and having children has changed things quite a bit right now. So most commentators believe that at this point, in the story of God's people, there's about 2 million Israelites, all right? So we've gone from a family of 70 to about 2 million people. And as you can imagine, the new king, who doesn't remember the Joseph or understand the arrangements they had before, he, he's looking at this going, listen, this could pose a problem for us, right? I mean, that's a lot of people. That's not just like a, a family that you've welcomed into your country. Like, this is a whole other nation, Right? And then two million people, you guys know what that takes to house and to feed and to take care of and all of these things. And so, so this new Pharaoh, he's looking at this and going, listen, this is a major problem. The, the, the presence of this people, these foreigners, they pose a threat to our Egyptian way of life, right? They're going to take our resources. They're going to take our jobs. They're encroaching upon our way of life. And this is a major problem. And so he identifies it as such in verse 9. So then we see the solution to that problem in verses 10 and 11. We're going to see that he comes up with a plan to help with population control. All right. So look at verse 10. It says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, all right? And so we see here in verse 10 uh, the, the, the solution to this, right? He says, let's move and deal with them shrewdly. That just simply means quickly and cunningly, right? Like we can't wait. We need to put a plan into practice to do something about this before they get even stronger than they are today. And so he says that we'll put taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And this is all so that they uh, would not take them over, right? So your translation in verse 10 may say, fight against us and escape from the land. Anybody's translation say that? No? You guys are like, we didn't even look at the Bible. Okay, escape from the land. It's better translated there, take over the land, all right? And it, it makes sense in context when you think about it, right? Like, like if the Egyptians wanted the, the Israelites to leave, then why would they keep them from leaving, right? Like he, they're not worried about them leaving uh, in mass numbers. They're worried about them staying. And if they're attacked by an enemy, taking over the land that belongs to the Egyptians. So he says, listen, in verse 11, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So the plan was to begin to attack the Israelites' way of life. 
to make it difficult for them to do things like work and provide food and grow crops and have their own families. Now, you guys know that. Some of you in the room, you may be able to relate to that. There's been a season in your life where it just feels like all you're doing is working and working and working, right? And when you're doing that, what are you not doing? You're not spending as much time with your family. You're not being able to rest. You're not being able to work on those uh, projects that you have at home, right? You guys ever been that place before? Like you're just like working 80 hours a week at work and you've got that thing that you need to do at the house and you just know like that might happen next year, right? Like that's what they're doing. And this is a form of population control because Pharaoh knows like, listen, if we can keep them busy, if we can keep them afflicted with heavy burdens, if we can keep them focused on doing our work, then they won't have time to do the things in their own personal lives. They're not gonna have time to be able to take care of themselves well and to rest and to provide their, their families with crops that they've grown and even build their own families. We know that to be true, right? You know, for the first time, in the history of the United States, the, 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 the percentage of people focused on materialism versus having children is the lowest it's ever been. 25% of people in the United States right now say that family is more important than stuff. And so you can see how that begins to shift and put pressure on things here. So that's what Pharaoh wants to do. He wants you so focused on your work and the things that you've got to do that you don't have time to build your family and to take care of yourself and do the things that you want to do. So it's a form of population control here. So look on with me. We get to verse 12. So that's Pharaoh's plan. Verse 12, we see the results of it. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. All right, so what happens here is Pharaoh puts together a plan that he thinks is a pretty decent plan. They afflict the Israelites with heavy burdens and the more they're oppressed, the more they flourish. The plan is actually backfiring. God has turned the Egyptians' oppression policy against them, right? And this is one of those but God moments that we see in the scriptures. The only answer to this, how this could be happening this way is that God is helping the Israelites flourish, See, God didn't take away the difficulty that they were facing, but instead God works in and through and around it. And he begins to allow his people to flourish in the midst of opposition, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of difficult days and dark days. Now you can imagine if you put yourself in the Israelite shoes though, as they're going through this, it's not fun, right? Now we all know that to be true. We know that God works in and through these things, but when we're in the middle of it, it doesn't change the fact that it's not a great experience, right? So they may feel like, listen, God, thanks. Uh, we're growing numerically. We're still adding more people here, but I don't know if you've noticed or not, but we still have this problem, and that problem is the oppression from the Egyptians. So if you could, it'd be super helpful if you could just make this part go away. Now, what we're going to find out as we read the story is God actually doesn't take any of the difficult away, but he works with his people through it all the while. And so that's what we see. Look at verse 13 and 14. So his, his plan has backfired on him. We're going on to plan B, if you will. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh here kind of doubles down. 
He's like, listen, uh, instead of just afflicting them with hard labor, now we're going to afflict them even worse. We're going to ruthlessly, ruthlessly work them. Uh, and, and really, it's, it's, to the, it's the idea of like working them nearly to death, right? So this is a very serious thing that they're doing to the Israelites. And so they, they're working them to the point of death. And then verse 14, it says that their lives became bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Like I said, you can imagine this, right? You can put yourself in this situation. It's been very easy for the Israelites to look around and go, God, where are you? Remember, this is 300 years. This isn't like a couple months of difficulty that they face. And, and they're probably looking around at this point and it says that they're, they're going bitter because of the hard service. You can imagine that their hearts are probably growing calloused. They've got lots of questions. God, do you see? Like these are God's people, right? These aren't just a random group of people on earth. This is God's people. So God, do you see what they're doing? Do you see what we're going through? Do you see the problems that we're facing? Where are you? Do you care? And they're experiencing more and more and more hardship in the middle of all this. And the Israelites come to a place where they recognize that we desperately need deliverance. And what we're gonna find out through this story is they need a deliverance that only God can provide. And God's gonna get all the glory and all the credit from this deliverance, but we're not there yet. God is still working in and through these circumstances and he's working on his own people and he's establishing a, a, a trust and a dependence upon him. So we see in verse 15 through 17, since plan A didn't work and plan B doesn't work, they just continue to flourish. We see that Pharaoh's now on plan C, all right? So plan C is to implement a policy to just kill them. Listen, if, if we can't afflict them with hard enough work, if we can't work them to death, they seem to still be flourishing, then here's what we'll do. We'll just have them kill their baby infants. So look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the male children live. So we see here a progressive oppression against the Israelites, right? Since we, uh, they keep growing, we're gonna now kill them as infants. And so Pharaoh goes to the midwives and he tells them, here's the plan. As the Hebrew women are giving birth, you're gonna look and see if it's a boy or if it's a girl. If it's a girl they live, it's a boy, you're instructed to kill them. Now, why would Pharaoh specifically go after the young men? Well, remember, what's Pharaoh's greatest concern in this entire story? His concern is that they would grow strong enough that they might overtake them one day. And what you don't want as king of Egypt is a bunch of men fighting age, right? And so he knows what we can do here is we'll strategically go after the young boys so that there's no men to fight. And he also knows that no society flourishes without men, right? So he goes after them specifically. And then we see in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So there's another truth in here that we recognize this morning, that if you're ever placed in a position as a believer in Jesus Christ, 
to go God's way and do what his word says or to do what you're being commanded to do by some person or even the government, what are we called to do? We're called to go God's way and make the decision that God has clearly laid out for us. And what God does here is he blesses them because of that decision. So look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So because of their decision to go God's way instead of what they were being told, God Helps them to flourish even more. So as a people, no matter what Pharaoh does, whatever he decides to do to oppress them or even kill them, it's not having the intended effect, right? And so as they're oppressed, God continues to bless and they flourish. And then they're told to kill the little boys and then they continue to flourish. And at some point, you know, like this doesn't happen overnight. This was probably a process of several years. And Pharaoh is thinking that they're doing what they're supposed to. And then one day he's like, wait a second. There's a lot of little boys running around around here, right? This would take a, quite a, a while, many years for them to be able to recognize that they're not doing what I've asked them to do. So he pulls the midwives in and questions them. And we see here in the midst of all this in verse 21 that the midwives, because of their fear of the Lord, they even got a personal blessing. So not only did God bless the nation and help them flourish, but God gave the midwives families, which is very, very unique at this time. In fact, most of the midwives become midwives because they were either single or couldn't have children. So they would go around and they would help the other women deliver their infants. And so what the scriptures try to tell us here is because of their trust in God, in the middle of all of their difficulty, God was, was blessing them corporately as a whole and God was blessing them individually as families and as people. And so that's a reminder for us as we walk through this and we think through this is that God doesn't take away all the difficult things, but yet God blesses in and through and around and despite all the things that the people of Israel are facing. Now, ultimately, we see the outcome of this, that Israel flourishes. The more they're oppressed, the more God blesses. So Pharaoh comes up with one more final plan, okay? If Afflicting you with hard burdens isn't going to work. If, if instructing the midwives to kill the baby boys isn't going to work, then here's what I'll do. I'll turn the Egyptian people against the Israelites, all right? And so what he starts is a, is a major uh, propaganda piece, right? He tries to convince the people that it's the right thing to do to kill these Hebrew baby boys. And so look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people... Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Like I said, you might be thinking to yourself, how in the world does he convince the people this? He convinces them by leading them to a place where they believe that this is the right thing to do. If you don't do this, they're coming for your stuff. They're gonna hurt your families. And so he gets all of the Egyptians convinced that what we should do is take these babies these male children, and throw them in the Nile. Now, why the Nile? That's also an interesting, interesting thought here. Like, why not just, if you see a Hebrew boy, why not just kill them? Well, I, there's a couple of things that I want us to understand here as reasons why. Number one, it's easy. It's easy. Everyone had access to the Nile. 
The vast majority of the population lived right on the Nile. So it wasn't very difficult for them to be able to take one of these Hebrew baby boys and throw them in the river. Number two, it's clean. It's clean. It's not messy. And it's fast, right? Any of you grew up on a farm? All right, these three people over here did. Nice. So, so this might be meaningful uh, to the rest of you. Maybe it's, it, it's not. But, but th- there's an idea here of like the, the, the cleanliness of it, right? Like, like they're not asked to get their hands dirty. And I'm not talking about people. I'm just talking about anything living. If you've ever been around or experienced something losing its life, it, it's a crazy experience. It's, it can be a very disturbing. And we're, we're in a culture that is so sanitized now, right? Like we don't deal much with death. We're not taking care of our own people that die. We're not even killing our own food, right? Like the reason why I asked if you live on a farm is I grew up in the city in Wichita, right? And so in my mind, when you ate chicken, you went to the store and you bought this blob of meat that come in that plastic wrapper. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so that's how we would go get chickens growing up. Well, one summer I got to spend with my crazy cousins and my uncle John in Missouri and he had a farm. And so one day he goes, hey, you guys want chicken? And we said, yeah, that sounds awesome for dinner. And so he hands us a hatchet and he says, go out and get one, kill it, clean it, pluck it, prepare it for dinner, all right? Totally different experience, right? I mean, I was not ready for all this. Like it was a a very, very difficult thing actually looking back on. That's what I mean. Like we're, we're so sanitized from this as a culture. Like this doesn't, this doesn't like jump out to us. And, and it's part of this that he makes it so clean and easy for, for the Egyptians, right? Like, could you imagine like if they had to like physically do this themselves? They don't, they don't wanna mess with all that. So this is easier, it's clean, it's not messy, it's fast. Number three is that they were able to keep a clear conscience. Why do I say that? Because the Egyptians, if you remember, the Egyptians believed that the Nile is God. Now, they're about to find out it's not, right? And that God is God alone. But in their minds, they they worship many gods, and one of those gods is the Nile. And so Pharaoh's convinced the people that if you would take these babies, you can give them to the Nile, and then it's not really you killing them, right? The Nile is the supplier of life and the taker of life. Nile is a god, right? And so when you throw the babies in there, if the Nile decides to keep them or take them, well, then that's on the Nile. And so they've been convinced that they should work out this plan. And I set all this up just to help you understand what is going on for the Israelites. You know, so many times as a culture, and I'm not trying to pretend like we don't have some difficult things going on, but so many times as a people of God, we look around and we think that we're experiencing the worst thing that believers have ever experienced in the history of the world. And listen, we're not even remotely close to what's going on right here in Israel with God's own people. They've been afflicted with heavy burdens. They've been put into bondage and slavery for 300 years. They've been instructed to kill their own male children. They've had to fight against that and go God's way. And now the people around them have been instructed to take their babies and throw them in the Nile. Listen, babies are going in the Nile. Like the story just ends here in verse 22. And we pick up next week in the context of what God's gonna do to preserve one of these little boys 
to help deliver his people, but make no mistake about it, there are babies that are going into the river. Put yourself in, that, in, the, in the shoes real fast. This is terrible. These are some dark, dark days. These are some crazy things going on. And like I already said, these are God's people. So if we're not careful, they're gonna come to a place where they begin to question God himself and miss the fact that God does see and God does know and God does care and God is providing a way for them to be delivered from this. But, it, but it's this way that God chooses. He doesn't make all of the hurt go away. He doesn't make all the hard stuff go away. It's that he works in and through and around and despite of all of these things as he prepares to deliver his people. So three truths for us today. I want us to, to make sure that we pull out of this text three truths, three theological truths that we find in here. Now, again, none of these, as is often the case, none of these things are gonna be like brand new revolutionary things to you, but they're things that we have to be reminded of again and again and again, all right? Because it's for our good that we hear this. Number one, we can trust God when we face difficult circumstances. We can trust God when we face difficult circumstances. And listen, we know it's true. It's quite another thing to actually cling to that truth when everything around you is falling apart. When everything around you is brokenness and sin. When, when you can't make sense of, of the difficulty that you're going through. It's much harder to cling to that truth when you're in in the hard time, right? In the difficult days, in the middle of the dark days. But it's a truth that you need to be reminded of again and again and again. And how do we know that we can trust God when we face difficult circumstances? Because we've been here before. God has a track record with us. Remember, this is the beginning of the second book in God's grand story. Up to this point, what do we have as track record with God? We've got Genesis. And we've seen from the very beginning from creation, we've done everything in the world to reject him as our God, to go our own way, to do our own thing. And yet God has been patient with us and kind and gracious. And he's demonstrated himself to be trustworthy and good. Even in chapter three, with sinners into the world and we mess this whole thing up, God doesn't give up on us. God's got a plan to see us through. Ultimately, you know that plan is to send his one and only son to this earth to live a sinless and perfect life, go to the cross on our behalf, right? And, and secure for us salvation. And then in his resurrection, secure for us eternal life. We know that that's God's plan. And we've seen that from the very beginning and all throughout the book of Genesis. What is it about? It's about broken and sinful people doing everything they can possibly do to mess this thing up, right? Go back and read it again if you forgot. Abraham, my goodness, how did we even make it to the next generation? Then you see with Isaac and time and time and time again, over and over and over again, what we see is God's trustworthiness and his faithfulness. So we've seen it. We've got that track record. It, it can be illustrated very easily for us. Check this out this morning. I got this stool for you. Some of you may have even seen this before, but it's, it'll be good. We've got this stool, right? This is much like the chair that you're sitting in right now, right? Quick show of hands. Who checked their chair this morning before they sat down in it to make sure that it would hold you up and support you? No one, right? 
You just sat right down in it. Now, I hope this thing don't collapse. It'll ruin the... This is wood. Yours made of steel, so hopefully you're, you're good. But, but, but for sake of the illustration, why did you not check? You have confidence, right? And that confidence becomes, comes from that track record. Every single time you've sat down in a chair just like that one, it's supported you and held you up. You, you, you have that trust in it, right? That confidence. Now, if your chair collapses one of these days, you're gonna, you're gonna probably be checking them more and more often, right? But we don't have that experience. Our experience has been every time I come in and every time I sit down, that thing does exactly what it's supposed to do. It holds me up every single time. We have that same exact experience with God. He's proven himself faithful time and time and time again. 500 times in a row, God's come through and demonstrated himself to be good and trustworthy in my life. And you know what's gonna be true the 501st time and the 502nd time? He's gonna come through just like he always has because I know that we have that. We've established that. He's demonstrated himself faithful time and time and time again. We have that track record together. Quick show of hands. Who in the room has been walking with the Lord for 50 years or more? Anybody? We've got several hands. Dennis. Dennis, you had your hand raised. Dennis, how do you know that you can trust the Lord? Because he's been there time and time and time again, right? Now, I haven't trusted the Lord that long, but guess what? it's gonna be the same result. So if you've walked with Jesus for 50 years, you've got 50 years of history with God. And the reason why this is so important for us to understand is unlike the chair, for some reason, we begin to doubt God much easier, right? This is what doesn't make any sense to me. I'll sit down time and time and time again and never, never check that thing. But with God, he's faithful 500 times in a row and the 501st thing that comes up in my life that's difficult and hard, what do I do? I gotta learn this lesson all over again. I don't know why, I wish it wasn't the case. But God demonstrates himself trustworthy and good again. And I've gotta learn that lesson time and time and time again. My hope and my prayer is that eventually I could just get to a place where like I trust the Lord as much as I trusted that stool, right? It kinda seems silly, but that's where we're at as a people and, and we can, we can trust God when we face difficult circumstances. Number two, our circumstances are a poor indicator of God's will and favor. Let me go through this quick. Our circumstances are a poor indicator of God's will and God's favor, all right? The reason why I say this, we tend to use a formula, right? If everything goes smooth and good and right in the way that, that we hope it would go, well, then we must be, must be in God's will and we must be under his favor. The problem with that is it's unbiblical, the Bible has many, many, many examples of people that are smack in the middle of God's will and plan for their life, and they're experiencing the most challenging and difficult thing that they've ever faced. Read the Bible. There's no prosperity gospel here. To follow Christ is to go God's way no matter what happens. And I cannot assure you that things are gonna go right and good. In fact, quite the opposite is probably true. So don't fall into the trap of using this, this unbiblical equation of knowing, like, does God love me? And then going to the board and going, well, you know, job's going real well. And uh, my 401k is looking really nice. So God must be for me, right? And, the, and then the opposite truth, because that, that's uh, so unbiblical. 
In fact, when Aaron and I first moved here, we experienced that a little bit. And this isn't a poke at the people that said this, but we had friends in Alabama that was like, like pointing to things that were happening in, in a good way to show that, man, this must be God's plan. We felt very confident that God was leading us to move here and come to Lenexa Baptist Church and then ultimately over here to Fellowship Olathe. But we felt very confident that that was God's will for our life. We put our house on the market within like, 24 hours, 12 hours, we had multiple offers on it. We chose the one that we thought was best. And what, what did people start saying? Man, look, that really must have been God's plan. God must have really wanted you to go there. Why? Because everything's just falling in line. God's just clearing a path. He's, he's making it smooth. Well, what happens when God doesn't clear the path and make it smooth? Am I not in his will? Of course I'm still in his will. The part of that story that gets crazy is like three weeks later, that guy backs out of the deal and we pay on two houses for eight months. Where's God now? Did God still want us in Kansas City? Absolutely God still wanted us in Kansas City because I know that my circumstances are a poor indication of being in God's will and plan for my life. Let me just encourage you with that. And the reason why this is also important is that it's good for us to understand that difficulty is not the same as bad. You could be going through a difficult time. It doesn't make it wrong or bad. It's an important distinction. If you in your mind think something's bad, then you automatically associate it with wrong. And if you're going through something bad that's wrong in your life, then something must be wrong with what God's doing. And you're gonna grow bitter and you're gonna grow resentful and you're gonna hold Hold God accountable for things that God isn't trying to do. But if you understand that you are going through a season and circumstance of difficulty, it'll lead you to a place where you can trust God in the midst of your challenge. All right, number three, last. God uses our circumstances to grow us. God in this story is about to call out a people. He's about to deliver a people, but God misses nothing. And God uses every single thing that you go through in life to conform you into the image of his son. And God uses our circumstances to grow us. That's why I've been saying he works in and through and around and despite. He doesn't just remove. He works through those things. In fact, we were with friends, the, the birch is right here uh, last Sunday night, and I was telling Brandon that one of my uh, favorite songs is a song Different by Micah Tyler, and he said, have you ever heard the explanation of that song? And I said, well, I hadn't, so we just turned it on right there on the TV. So he begins to walk through why he wrote the song, and he says in the season leading up to him writing it, it felt like everything was just getting worse. Somebody in his family, you know, was dying and then somebody, something happened to their home and then his brother's diagnosed with cancer and it felt like everything in his life had begun to fall apart. And in there, he has a line that just jumped out to me that I wanted to share with you guys this morning. In that, he says, we want our circumstances to change, but God is using them to change us, right? And that's so, so important. And it's led me to this question this week. Do I want solutions and change more than I want Jesus? I'll ask you one more time. Do I want solutions and change more than I want Jesus? Now, I'm not saying it's gonna be painless. And I'm not saying that once it's over that you wouldn't wanna sign up for it again. But here's what I do know. I know that in my life, the times and circumstances that God has used to grow me the most 
has been through difficult things. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I don't seem to learn a whole lot when things just go smoothly and perfectly. I wish I did, but God uses my circumstances to grow me and to change me. And the reason why that's important is when we're going through difficult days, I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask God to heal you or to help you. But what I am saying is let's not miss the opportunity to lean into the relationship with Jesus and ask and see how God might be using it to work in our lives and change us instead of just focusing on, God, take this away. Remove this, remove that. Like I said, if you do that and God answered that prayer, man, where would your relationship with him be today? I know mine would be very, very shallow because I would have missed the opportunity to walk through those difficult days with God by my side as he used them to change me and grow me. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. God, we thank you for the challenge that we find in it. God, again, I, I just wanna lift up to you right now this morning, God, the person in this room that is going through something really hard. God, going through something very difficult. God, maybe it's the darkest days that they've ever experienced in their whole lives. And so God, I pray that you would meet with them here this morning. God, I pray that you would remind them of how much you love them. God, I pray that you would remind them that you see and that you know and that you care. God, I pray that you'd also remind them that you're there with them. God, your word does promise us that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so Father, I pray that you would meet them here this morning, God. Encourage them with that truth. God, for the person in this room that maybe doesn't have a relationship with you today, God, I pray that you would bring them to the end of themselves. God, I pray that they would recognize, God, that they're a sinner. God, that they desperately need you to be their savior. God, your word tells us that in you and you alone is salvation. So Father, I pray that you'd make that very clear today that you would also encourage them that God, what you're calling them to is a relationship. You've not promised them to heal them. God, you've not promised them to change their bank account. You've not promised them anything other than a relationship with you and eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name.